We've answered almost 60 common questions about sports nutrition to date on this podcast. Questions like, what should I eat or drink during my long training session? Is low carb right for me? And what should I eat to optimize recovery? But one thing we don't often consider when answering these questions is what are the environmental implications of our advice? Are we inadvertently contributing to climate change and destruction of the very environments that we love to train and race in? As a runner, cyclist or triathlete, you no doubt love the fact that our sport takes us outdoors, often to beautiful and remote locations. Locations that we want to preserve and protect for years to come, for our own enjoyment and for the enjoyment of future generations. So how do our dietary choices, both day-to-day and during exercise, impact the environment? Can we be good athletes and good global citizens, or are we facing an uncomfortable conflict of values? Today, we're joined by Dr. Alba Regent-Closer, one of the only sports dietitians in the world who is actively working in this area. We'll unpack and simplify the complex relationship between food and the environment, discover which food choices have the biggest environmental impact, look at the impact of sports-specific nutrition strategies on the environment, and finish with the three things that athletes should do from a nutrition perspective if they care about reducing their environmental impact. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards, or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert or researcher in our first episode, or an athlete or coach in the B episode to add their unique perspective as well. Today, it is episode 59A, What's the Environmental Impact of Sports Nutrition? With our special guest, Dr. Alba Regent-Closer. But before we get to Alba, Steph, another week, how are you going? Well, right now I'm laughing at you because you're not doing the rolling R that Alba did for us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear that shortly. Yeah. <laughs> thought you might be able to master it. I'm terrible with just pronouncing general words, so yep. I thought you might nail that one. No, no. <laughs> I'm going good, Al, going good. 12-week-old puppy. Um, as you know, I mentioned before, Cooper's, yeah, he's he's warming up like they were even sharing food before, which I can't believe. So um, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And also, actually, the other thing that I was watching that we spoke about was on Netflix, there's a really cool sort of docu-series on um, the Tour de France, our, which... Yeah, Tour um, de France Unchained, yeah. Yeah, and that was just awesome. I, I really love that. And it's good for me because I don't do the crazy hours of watching in the evening that you um, tend to do and it's good as well because maybe I'll get bored if I watch the same like the whole stage I don't know whereas this you know it really just takes you and shows you all the real intense Mm. moments and just how like full-on that sport is so yeah I'd recommend anyone that even if they're not a you know a, a watcher of cycling I reckon they'd really enjoy watching this um this episode so what about you? Yeah, no, pretty pretty much the same. Yeah, trying to stay warm. It is absolutely freezing in Melbourne at the mm-hmm. moment. 
So, yeah, uh, other than that, just enjoying watching the cricket, obviously, on the other side of the world. So it's prime time for us, although it gets a little bit late. Um, but, yeah, been enjoying that. It's a great game at the moment with the Ashes on. Yep. Updates. The, obviously, the study recruitment we've still got going for, for you. Any more news on that? No, no, just... Yeah, if you want to get involved, if you're a runner based in Melbourne or a triathlete and you're interested in doing some running in a warm environment, 30 degrees over the winter, good <laughs> heat training for you, yeah. and you want to have a look at different strategies to kind of optimise hydration prior to exercise or just understand a bit more about your sweat rate and what makes you tick from a hydration point of view, there'll be some gut assessment in there as well. So that's that's always a bonus to have a look at that sort of thing because that's not cheap if you want to go and pay to get that done privately. Then feel free to get in touch. We put the information on that up on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So if you are interested, you can get in touch. All the details are up there on social media. Hmm. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really do appreciate it. And those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And then just a reminder if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Today's episode, we are up to episode 59A, our. Yes, so our question was, what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition? And our guest is Dr. Alba Regent closer So Alba is a sports dietitian from Andorra, and she'll pronounce her name properly because we can't um, very <laughs> shortly when we speak to her. Uh, she's currently working for a company called Agriscope, which is an organisation set up by the Swiss government as a centre for agricultural research in particular looking at the environmental impact of agriculture and food production and how to improve it. But Alba did her PhD studying the environmental impact of the diet of athletes, which is pretty much the only research in this area that's specific to sports nutrition that we're aware of so far. I'm sure it'll be a a growing area as concern about the environmental impact of food production and food choices becomes more and more important over time. So I first came across Alba's work when I saw an article written by her and her PhD supervisor, Associate Professor Nana Meyer from the University of Colorado, and that was published in 2017. And the paper is titled, Eat as if you could save the planet and win sustainability integration into nutrition for exercise and sport. And that's an open access paper. So anyone can access that for free online. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to have a read. So when we discussed probably last year sometime, Steph, doing an episode around the environmental aspects of sports nutrition, I sort of had this paper in the back of my mind and said, oh, I know exactly who we need to ask about this particular topic. So we managed to speak to Alba. She's just recently returned from maternity leave. So we have waited about 12 months to have this one, as we have recently with Sophie Killer as well with the magnesium episode. But uh, both of them, I think, were, were well worth the wait and you know, rather speak to the people who are the, the true experts on this. So just before we get into this interview, we do discuss in this episode a process that's known as life cycle assessment or LCA. So you might hear that being referred to quite a bit throughout the podcast. So LCA or life cycle assessment is basically an internationally standardized method of assessing the direct and indirect environmental impacts of a product or a service. 
in this case, it's food, but it doesn't have to be. It can be anything. And it assessed that across its entire lifetime. So for food, we're talking from the initial farming process through the food processing and manufacturing, the packaging, the transport, the retail sales side of it, even the storage of that food at home and the methods used to prepare that food right up to it's on your plate and you're going to eat it. All of that is captured in a life cycle assessment. So it includes a variety of inputs, things like land use, water use, energy use, raw materials, things like food or um, you know, in terms of uh, feeding animals, for example, or fertilizer. Uh, it includes things like plastics and other resources that might go into the packaging of food, for example. But it also includes outputs. So this is things like emissions to the air in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It includes water um, outputs. It includes things that might go into the soil like carbon, phosphorus and nitrogen, which might have beneficial or adverse effects depending on what it is. And then it tries to quantify all of these impacts that the various inputs and outputs have on different aspects of the environment. And Alba will explain more about what these are throughout the interview. So I won't go into those just now. Awesome. I'm sure we're all excited to get stuck into this one. So yeah, let's do it. Welcome, Alba. Rewan Closa. <laughs> Welcome to the long much. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. <laughs> most welcome, most welcome. So you're a sports dietitian now in Zurich, horrible place to be, but you were previously in Andorra and you're just back, I believe, from maternity leave. So what sort of work were you doing, I guess, just prior to maternity leave and now that you're back? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so exactly. I am originally from Andorra, so this very small country between France and Spain in the mountains of the Pyrenees, so everybody knows where Andorra is now. <laughs> but as you said, I moved two years ago to Zurich for my postdoc, and yeah, my little baby was born just here. So now I'm just back from maternity leave and continue the work I was doing just prior here in Zurich. So in Andorra, I was mainly working as a sports dietitian and working a lot with mountaineering sports because we are in the mountains and winter sports. But then I moved to Switzerland because here I'm working mainly with a specialized group in life cycle assessment. So working on the environmental perspective of food systems. And I really wanted to gain more knowledge on that field, talking about sustainability and sports nutrition. And that's the reason I am here in Switzerland and yeah, back from my maternity leave working on this again. And just out of interest, are you an athlete yourself? Are you a mountaineer or a skier or? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I would say I'm not a professional athlete, but I really enjoy mountains. So I enjoy mountains in summer, in spring and in winter, and I really love skiing. So moving from Andorra to the Pyrenees to the Alps, even if it was for my job, for a personal site, it's also a good place to be. And I will add a step that I just moved here. The position is at Acroscope, and this is a research center. Maybe people from the sports sites are not so aware of it, but it's about agricultural and research center for agriculture in Switzerland. It's part of the government, and we work in these life cycle assessment groups so specifically for environmental impact of food systems. And so the reason that we are lucky enough to be speaking to you today 
is because you've done, as far as we can see, the only research on the environmental impact of food and nutrition choices, specifically for athletes. And in fact, that was, um, as you've mentioned, your PhD. So what got you into this area of research? And does it surprise you that there's not much really happening in this area? The paper that we published with one of my master's advisor, PhD advisor, Nana Meyer, Eat That You Could Save the Planet and Win, was kind of the first paper to be out there to get knowledge of this link between sustainability and sports nutrition. And also we published then another one about the environmental impact of the athletes play. That's, as you said, so really talking about athlete nutrition and what's the impact of athletes. And in this case, we did it already with this agroscope group where I'm working now with my PhD to help us with this environmental aspect. Because I think this was part of my PhD to integrate sustainability into sports nutrition, but there is not a lot of work done in that regard. And I think also it's because us as a sport dietitian, we don't have a lot of knowledge yet about environmental impact of foods. It has become very popular the last years, but of course we need to gain more knowledge to be able to analyze and, and get real data on it. And I think the interest is really growing and hopefully in the next years we will have more papers and more research also to, to give advice to our athletes. Mm. Yeah. And did you know much about how to figure out the environmental impact of food choices prior to doing your PhD or was that all new to you? It was completely new to me and I would say it's not easy at all and I am not an expert at all yet. So it's really much more complicated than what we think about it. For me, I remember I was doing my master with Dr. Nana Meyer in Colorado about sports nutrition. That's the reason I went to Colorado and with her and she was very excited because she did sabbatical with this group at Acroscope in, Swin in Switzerland. So she learned about life cycle assessment. So she came back and said, okay, we have to do this. We have to integrate this. And I was took so strange and so difficult and so complicated. But then we got excited. She got me excited. And that's why we decided to, to get that. But, but I think it's a methodology or, or a field that it's, starting to get into nutrition sciences and a lot so people are starting to kind of make this connection but of course we need some work and in sports nutrition also yeah yeah so most people are probably at least vaguely aware that food production transport and consumption have impacts on the environment but sometimes it's hard to know where to start really so you know there's greenhouse gas emissions land and water use impact on soil quality litter from packaging and so forth so how should we think about the environmental impact of our food choices is there a clever way of bringing all of this together so we can think about the overall environmental impact yeah so as you said, yes, for a long time, food production and consumption, uh, the environmental impact was not the focus on. So we were focusing maybe on take public transport and not so much about the food impact of what, of what we put in our plates. But the same way we analyze foods of 
how much carbohydrate, how much protein do they have. When we analyze the environmental impact of foods, we need to take into account all these categories, what you said. Those are called environmental impact categories. So greenhouse gas emission, the land use, how much water do we need to produce one food? Because sometimes one food can be produced using a lot of water, but has low greenhouse gas emission. Then if we analyze this food only with one category, we will say, okay, this food has a low impact because it requires or it emits low green gas emissions. But if we look on the other side, it has a high water use. So then if we analyze it for the water content, it will be very bad. So it's very important then to make sure that we analyze as comprehensive as we can all the different environmental categories of the different foods. Of course, from a consumer perspective, it's a bit complicated because we are not experts in LCA or we are not experts sometimes in nutrition and we want to know, is this food good or bad for me? And that, I think, is what brings us to your next question. In general, I would say there are three main points we can take into account when choosing the foods we put in our plates. So plant-based Protein-rich foods generally have a lower environmental impact in almost all the environmental impact categories than animal-based protein foods. We know that if we consume seasonal fruits and veggies as much as possible and avoid transport by air, that really helps. And we know that there is a very easy one that sometimes, a lot of times it's forgotten, but it's reducing food waste on our plates. So really this one that we don't think so much or we don't talk too much, but I think it's also very important. So these will be very three easy steps to take an action on reducing the environmental impact of our plants. Yeah. So if we think about how runners, cyclists and triathletes eat, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that they eat a lot more than the average person because of the amount of training that they do and the energy that they expend. I guess this is a kind of an unavoidable part of the sport, but in a way, I guess that would kind of make the potential environmental impact of an endurance athlete's diet greater than sedentary people. And so therefore, should food choices be even more important to them and the environmental impact that that they're having? I love this question because this was a little bit what we analyzed in our study that we did, that was the analysis of the athlete's plate for athletes, the environmental impact of the athlete's plate. For anyone who's not familiar, so the athlete's plate is an education tool that was developed in the U.S., uh, for education of American athletes through the U.S. Olympic Committee system, am I right? Yes, and in collaboration yeah. with Dr. Nana Meyer at the University of Colorado, Colorado yes. Springs. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if everybody is familiar with the athlete's plate or in our audience, so just a very short reminder. It's a little bit of periodizing nutrition, the same way with training, from an easy training day, a moderate training day, or a hard training day. So, of course, in a hard training day, as you said, Seth, we need huge amounts of food, and to cover all that energy expenditure for athletes and endurance athletes train a lot, so they need a lot in their plates. What we know is that also in those periods of hard training dates, we need mainly carbohydrate foods. Of course, 
protein foods are there and fat and other foods. But carbohydrate, it's one of the main sources for endurance athletes. And carbohydrate-rich foods generally have a lower environmental impact than protein-rich foods. So it could even be that a westernized, sedentary person sitting in their sofa could also have a higher environmental impact diet because it's including much more protein-rich foods on their plate than an endurance athlete. And this, we, it was one of the conclusions of our study that really the hard plate, of course, has an environmental impact when we look at the total weight of the plate because it has more food. But if we take into account this amount of food was mainly carbohydrate, if well done, this shouldn't have to be much more higher if we do it properly. So that's something to take into account. The other thing I would say we found in our study that can be kind of a recommendation for the athletes listening is that sometimes we use these rich protein carbohydrate sources like quinoa or other cereals that are quite rich and also add high protein, animal protein rich foods in our plates. So then the protein wa was a bit higher, and that's what we found in our study, that proteins were above the recommendations, quite higher in the hard plate because of that reason. So when these high-rich cereal, protein cereals or sources of plant-based foods are added into the plate, maybe in that meal we don't need this animal or just a little bit. And then it really reduces quite importantly and significantly the proteins below the recommended or at the recommended value, the threshold, and also reduce the environmental impact of the plate. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so obviously one big area of your research or one area that the research picked up on, as you said, was that emphasis on protein intake in sports nutrition guidelines. It's mm -hmm. yeah, along with carbohydrate, it's one of those areas that's really emphasized, you know, getting enough protein for optimal recovery and performance and so on. Um, and particularly, I guess, the scientific support for animal protein sources being superior or at least not requiring as large a quantity of protein from an animal source of protein compared to plant-based protein sources. Although having said that, the literature is starting to slowly change in that and maybe we'll come back to that shortly as well. So I guess the, the first part of that is, you know, can athletes still optimize their performance and recovery without being reliant on animal-based protein sources, given that they are probably the ones that have the greatest impact on the environment across all of those categories, as you said. Yeah, I mean, athletes can have a plant-based diet and perform perfectly. This is not a problem. It's done correctly. Of course, mm -hmm. we need to be careful that there is no deficiency on any micronutrient, that proteins intakes are, are, are there. As you said, the last year, the last 20 years, we had a lot of research about dairy, especially protein for high, for good recovery in athletes post-exercise. And yes, the research is changing a bit and we are starting to have some papers in plant-based proteins to back up a little bit our, I will say, advice to athletes, how they should combine these plant-based proteins to ensure that muscle recovery is done properly and we have enough muscle anabolism and, and adaptations to that training. Mm, yeah. And, and I guess even if you take that line that, that has been used of, you know, if you have a plant-based protein source, you might need more protein in that meal compared to from a, if it's from an animal source. 
So even if, if you take that approach and say, oh, I'm going to have a larger serving of protein, but I'm going to get it from a plant source, in terms of environmental impact, is that you're still better off even though you're eating more of it than from the animal source? Like, is the difference that big? Yeah, the difference of plant-based to animal-based protein is really big, especially in the production phase. That's where main change happens. So when I discuss about the LCA, this life cycle assessment that analyzes different stages of the food production, in, in animal plant, in animal protein-rich foods, this agricultural phase has a huge difference, makes a huge difference, especially for meat. So cows, it's a typical example. No? Mm. When you go to chicken or other other meat or eggs, it's a bit lower. But still the difference, it's even if you need a bit more of plant-based protein, it's still significant. Yep. Okay. And some of the plant-based alternatives involve more food processing than others. So, you know, tofu might be an example where you've taken soybeans and processed them quite a bit to make tofu as opposed to just eating legumes as they are, you know, lentils or chickpeas or something like that. How does the environmental impact of something like tofu or even something like some of the the plant-based meats that are now sort of really coming into the market, certainly here in Australia, I'm assuming elsewhere as well, how does that compare to, say, fresh meat or chicken or something like that? Yeah, so it's true that there is a processing involved. Um, some of this processing, like tofu, has been done for uh, generations and years and years. Some mm. other processings are more new processing. And that gives us new products to the market that mimics more what meat is. And for people that is reluctant a bit to go to this, uh, can help. On the environmental side, we know that sometimes this processing, really when doing done in large facilities, are very efficient. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do that for my study. So we didn't analyze that. So I don't have an answer specifically for that case. But really the... The processing, it's, it's so efficient that it's not a big part of the contribution. But sometimes it can be when talking about plant-based foods, because depending on how the processing is done. Also, we I will say, and we'll add that if we don't only look at the environmental dimension of foods, but the nutritional and health dimension of foods, we also lack data sometimes of the nutrition or health impacts of some of these processes. So I think it's also important not to focus on the of course, food is important, nutrition, health and environment. So all the dimensions of the food have to be taken into account. And now in our group at Agnoscope, where I'm doing my postdoc, we have a new project that they are really evaluating alternative meat and dairy alternative and their nutritional environmental impacts. So maybe if you ask me this question in one year, <laughs> <laughs> I will have a bit more of specific answers to answer yeah. that. Yeah. And yep. the project is available online. But I think, as you said before, the focus is getting there into the research. So in the next years, we will have more data to really back up that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. And I guess for people who aren't at the stage where they're ready to give up animal protein in their diet completely, I guess are there, you mentioned before, say chicken, for example, or eggs compared to maybe you know beef or something like that is going to probably have a lower environmental impact. I guess the other thing that springs to my mind, uh, just thinking about sort of the typical Australian diet, but you probably see it elsewhere as well, is you know, having like an entire chicken breast in a meal or you know, a 300-gram steak or something like that. And we know from the research that's you know, probably double the amount of protein you actually need in a single meal. 
So I guess even if you are making those choices, thinking about the portion size that you actually need versus what you're having is one of the ways that you can help from an environmental impact point of view. Absolutely. So you took my words from my mouth because really cutting quantity, it's really important. And and the recommendations in general for dietary guidelines are changing all around the globe. And, and that's one of the first steps. We say that taking the meat from the central piece of your plate and putting it as the topping of your plate, it's the easy mm-hmm. way to really make that reduction. And I think, of course, as you said, some people are already vegetarians or vegans, they are ready to give up, but others not, and you don't have to. I mean, at the end, it's a choice, but of course, I think we all need to reduce a little bit, especially in westernized countries and in some oxygen, yeah, western diets that we have. So I will say that even for athletes, in some cases, when you have huge anemias or sometimes it's difficult to catch up on some micronutrients, going to a flexitarian approach can even help you to ensure you have all micronutrients, but at the same time, you're aware of the environmental impact of your diet. So yep. we can have a win-win there. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I guess the other sources of protein that, that athletes would be considering as well as, you know, meat, fish, chicken, eggs, that kind of thing in terms of animal sources would be dairy products, you know, milk, cheese, yogurt, that kind of thing. Where does that kind of sit in that sort of overall picture of animal-based foods? Yeah. So... From an environmental perspective, it still has some impact that has to be considerable, depending on the kind of cheese, depending on the kind of yogurt, depending yeah, the amounts that we are talking about. But it's true that dairy has been, been known to be one of the best recovery proteins or has been very used. So I will say that, of course, if we want to use them as a recovery option for athletes, that's good. But of course, we have to be aware of these animal protein-based sources. So we also have other alternatives that can be put from a plant-based side or use them very wisely in some of those trainees that you really need fast and good recovery. So mm. kind of trying to find a balance between how we use them. Yeah. Yep. So only when absolutely necessary from a sort of a convenience point of view. Exactly. Example. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably leads on nicely to the next question, which was around sort of protein supplements, protein powders and things like that, which I guess can be from a plant or animal source, depending on the particular product. Obviously, your animal-based protein powders, people would use things like whey protein, for example, which you know is from the waste product usually of, of cheese production. Does that make a difference in terms of its environmental impact? I mean, I guess you've got to make the cheese and have, you know, breed the cow in the first place. To, to end up with your whey protein? Yeah, it's a great question. And we had some of these questions about supplements when we did our studies because we did not analyze supplements on our study because it's not part of the athlete's plane. So we didn't do an environmental impact of them. And it's true that a lot of these products, especially for the whey protein, it's made of co-products. So then when we analyze, when you do an LCA with those co-products, you take this into account as an allocation for the total environmental impact. And of course, it, it can reduce because it's a co-product, you're reusing it. But it does not mean that it has zero impact. That's also mm. important to take that into account. So to my knowledge, there are no studies comparing different supplements or weight supplements with plant-based proteins. What we know is that, as I said before, for animal protein-rich foods, 
the production phase, it's kind of the main contributor of the total environmental impact. With plant-based products, this is not so true. So then the other phases, so the processing or the packaging or all the other phases can have an impact there or a higher contribution to the total impact of the environmental impact. So then for those products, we have to also take into account all those other aspects. Yeah, and that would be obviously relevant for your plant-based protein powders where you start off with your chickpeas and rice and things like that, but then you have to go through a lot of processing to come out with your plant-based protein in a bag. Yeah, and of course, that's it's a total contribution. So then maybe they're reducing the processing environmental impact or having a more environmentally friendly packaging can have an impact on the total environmental impact. Mm. I'm not saying you should not take those into account for the animal-based ones also, but of course the, the production phase has a higher contribution. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, obviously, if we think about specifically the kinds of foods and fluids that runners, cyclists, and triathletes might use in training or in a competition, we obviously have, generally speaking, products that are very highly processed, you know, your sports drinks, your gels, energy bars, these sorts of things. They're usually individually packaged by necessity. It sounds like we don't know a lot about the impact of these things. Yeah, exactly. We don't know a lot. At least I'm not aware. Maybe there is a study there that I'm not aware, but yeah, we didn't analyze it and there are not lots of studies, but we are aware of that. But I, as I said, this package, these products are made with a lot of sugar sometimes, especially sports drinks and some additives, some water. Maybe then the packaging has a, has a higher contribution. I will add something to there. It's that it's true that in some cases, in endurance races especially, it has been a bit criticized that we, for example, we, we do with this packaging or these supplements, oh, we throw them away. So really ensuring that we clean after, at least it's something that has to be important. And I want to mention one sport that's ski montaigneuring. In ski montaigneuring, the rules do not allow in a race to throw the packaging in the middle of the mountain because this sport is so connected with the mountains. So mm. you have to kind of only in the really place where you can take the supplement and throw it there. But really on the other race, you are penalized for doing so. So there are other aspects during the sports that we can take also that are linked to food during the race or supplements that can make be the athletes aware of what they are doing. So I think it's also an additive aspect to take into account. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I was speaking to a, a client of mine, a triathlete the other day who got penalized at a race for for littering outside the uh-huh. designated area, like by 10 meters or something like that. She tried to get rid of it and was too late sort of thing. So yeah, it, it is happening in other sports as well. I guess the other thing that, that some athletes do, and I know Steph and I have used this quite a bit, is actually buying raw ingredients to make your own sports nutrition products at home. And that can be for a bunch of different reasons. It can be around trying to control the flavor for example you know you can you know dial down the sweetness for example in products particularly for some of the ultra trail runners that that are out there for so long Um, but i'm wondering you know whether that approach might be potentially advantageous in that you can possibly reduce down the reusable or you know the single use packaging you have more reusable you know soft flasks and reusable gel flasks and things like that rather than buying a gel in its own packet and once it's done the the packet's throw away Mm -hmm. yeah 
as I said, we don't have a size and supplement. So this is, if someone is hearing us that wants to do some research on this area, just jump <laughs> in it because we need some research. But I will say there is, for example, a very, I would say, funny study talking about pizza. If it's a homemade pizza or a kind of packaging one that you buy in the supermarket, which one is more environmentally friendly? And we know that just because the oven is so energy intensive, the home oven and the industrial processing is so, so efficient sometimes. So mm. sometimes doing it at home, energy-wise, it has a higher impact. Mm. However, I'm not saying don't cook. Yeah? <laughs> Very important. <laughs> I think, as I said before, we need to focus not only on one impact of food, that it's the environment. We need to focus about all the other aspects of food. So I would say nutrition, taste, cooking, enjoying the food. These are part of nutrition. And, are, and when we are raising comfort food, it's so important when we are training every day. So really, I think there are other aspects of food that needs to be taken into account, not only one, because then we get a side addition. And then there is always synergies and trade-offs on the different dimensions of food. So maybe here you win and in the other part you lose a bit. So, for example, I don't know, buying your fruits and cereals from your farmer to make your own bars, does it have an impact on the economy of the place? This is also talking about sustainability. So it's true that we have been talking a lot about the environmental sustainability, but we have about the social and the economic sustainability. So all the three pillars of sustainability. And, and I think food literacy as a sport dietitian was a very, very important part of my job. So teaching athletes how to cook, how to share the meal, how to enjoy it, how to take time to do that. And this really helps heal and helps train better. So mm. I would really go for it and make your own bars where possible. But yeah, sometimes science, it's not there to back us up in all the dimensions. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes, makes perfect sense. And I'm guessing in that case, we don't know a lot about, I'm thinking more and this is more sort of broader dietary supplements, so not sports nutrition specific, but like our iron tablets and things like that. We don't really know much about the life cycle assessment of all your little pills and capsules and things like that either. <laughs> no, we don't have them and we don't know them. I, I will mm. add something here related to the protein supplements that you said before. I think, of course, we know in athletes and when we are training a lot, we really need those supplements in some cases and or we have a deficiency on iron, even if we mm. can increase iron in our diet we need the iron peel but it's true that a, a food approach a food first approach so really taking the foods first and, and giving them the importance of making the good combinations is important and i think the food matrix how we combine the different foods for the plant-based proteins it's something that we need to really learn for for some deficiencies also so for now we have that knowledge and maybe in the future we have also the environmental impact of those yeah yeah, makes sense. All right, so bring it all together. If we've got listeners who are thinking, okay, well, what can I do in terms of my nutrition to you know, reduce maybe the environmental impact of my food choices? I guess where where's the kind of the things that you'd suggest that they start with? What are the, the simple, easy wins? Yeah, I would say the main three things I said before were reduce the rumian meat maybe. If you want to not cut all meats, uh, Romian meat is the first one, so beef meat, and maybe not taking it out if you don't want from your diet, from, from that big piece, as you said, going to the topping. So really, it's the topping of your plate instead of the main part of your plate. 
Second one, reduce food waste. Really be more conscious about it because it can be a change. I know for athletes, sometimes traveling, it's a bit complicated, but here I think sports dietitians can really help when you plan a little bit, when you organize your fridge, when you prepare a meal ahead of time to reduce food waste. This is a huge, good job. And then the third one, it's really fruits and veggies when bought locally and seasonal and avoiding any air transportation really also can have an impact. So these yeah. are very three steps everybody can make. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and as we head, and this is maybe more of a, a sort of a hypothetical question, but I guess as we head hopefully towards a bit of more of a sustainable future in terms of renewable energy, reduced use of fossil fuels for transportation and maybe for package packaging in terms of plastic and things like that, are you overall sort of optimistic that the environmental cost of food production, transport, storage, packaging, all that kind of thing is going to improve over time and, and make, I guess, the system make it easier for people to make choices that are not so harmful to the environment? Do you, do you feel like that's where we're headed? <laughs> this is a very difficult question. I need a magic <laughs> ball. I wish we would be more sustainable in the future. And, and, and in general, I think to be sustainable, sometimes it, it's a bit difficult, so you need to make the effort. And that's why it's difficult for people to jump into the boat sometimes. But even if sustainability initiatives are growing, if governments are taking are more aware of that, I believe that consumer will still play a big role on it. So I think we need to be educated. We need to learn a little bit more about it. Athletes have to be more on that sustainable choice. I always think that athletes are also kind of role models for society. It's not to put a lot of pressure or responsibility, but I think it's, it's, it's something that happens. So really, all consumers, we need to be a bit more aware, even if things hopefully will be get easier and more sustainable choices in the future. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, to finish up with now, I'm going to hand it back to Steph, and she's going to finish us off with our bonus round. Awesome. So this is where our listeners can learn a little bit more about you. So if you weren't working in sport, in nutrition or sport, what do you think you'd be doing instead? <laughs> yeah. Right now, as I said before, I, I have become a, a new mother. So right now, for me, it sounds very good to have a very nice garden and grow my own veggies and spare a bit more time outside and having a bit of peace. So I think that's what I would be doing right now if I was doing this. <laughs> and one thing on your bucket list that you haven't yet done. Yeah, so... I really wanted for a long time to hide the Monte Rosa. This is a peak here in Switzerland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has a very nice hut that was built to be a sustainable hut in more mm -hmm. than two, almost 3,000 meters altitude. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the peak is even higher, but the hut is there. So we really, it's in my bucket list. And since we moved to Switzerland, it just went up. So hopefully soon. <laughs> <laughs> and what's a sport you've always wanted to try i bet you are yet to have the chance yeah i'm not sure sure i will try it ever but diving has always caught my eye i think it's so athletic but so aesthetic and just you know that one jump 
And yeah. mm. at the same time, it's it's amazing how athletic you need to be. But yeah. yeah, so I really like diving, but I don't know if I will get myself to just jump from there say, so high. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to not have a fear of heights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your favorite sporting moment in 2023 so far? So for me, for this year and also from last year, what I really enjoy, it's seeing my athletes, like Andorran athletes, when they compete. And I, in 2022, we had the Olympic Games. In 2023, we had fantastic results in cross-country skiing. So for me, it's like a, this proud mommy thing, I think, when I see, mm-hmm. you know, Andorran athletes. We have never won an Olympic medal yet. Hopefully one day we have very young athletes. So, yeah, I think that is what I really enjoy. And do you live by any particular piece of advice or motto at all? Not per se, but I think I will say four words that my parents always taught me or told me, and I think I I keep having them in my head, even if sometimes I'm not so good at them. But they always said to respect people and the environment, to have a lot of patience, which I'm not so good at it. Really. Neither am I. <laughs> to be very constant and to have a lot of confidence. So I think those four things work in my daily life when I can. Yeah. And I'm sure the being a, a new mother, the patient side of things is <laughs> well and truly come to the front. Exactly. Now, this for sure. But then for other things, it's a bit more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alba. It's been great to chat to you. Obviously, this is an area, as we said, a lot of people maybe sort of think about in passing, but probably don't put a lot of thought into. But maybe if they, you know, they're concerned about the environment, maybe you know, need to to put some more thought into it. So hopefully, this is maybe opening some conversations or some ideas and thoughts with with athletes. Hopefully, it's something that they can then share with their fellow athletes as well get that message out there and hopefully we will get as you said some more research happening so we can fill in the gaps in terms of our knowledge where we don't have that full understanding of the environmental impact that some of our sports nutrition choices might make but I think there's some really good starting points there that people can work on to try and reduce their environmental impact through their nutrition choices so thanks so much for coming on the podcast yeah thank you so much for tackling this topic because it really makes me very happy that we are talking in sports nutrition about that I know big movements like the Olympic movement, it's taking into sustainability and we are starting to talk about it. But I think, yes, everyone has can make a short and little mm. impact. So I really appreciate you taking talking about that and kind of disseminating the message around. So thank you very yeah. much for having me. No problem. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Alba, for the insight into the question, what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition? So now I'll hand it over to Al to summarise all of that. And yeah, yeah, go for it, Al. Cool. Yeah, so our question was, what is the environmental impact of sports nutrition? And obviously there's multiple parts, as we've heard, to environmental impact. And I think this is why it gets so complicated and so confusing at times to figure out what's going on here. So I guess the main areas we can consider are greenhouse gas emissions, kind of the obvious one that people tend to think about, but there's also land use, water use, and this concept called eutrophication, which is basically the runoff of minerals like phosphorus and nitrogen 
often from things like fertilizers or other chemicals and the runoff of those into waterways so lakes and rivers and things like that that causes excessive growth of algae and plant material um, but often is harmful to fish and other life within the waterways so to figure out all of these environmental impacts you have to do the life cycle assessment or, or lca and different foods, as Alba mentioned, can score really well in one area, but really poorly in another, which again is why it makes it so confusing. You know, something can have uh, really low greenhouse gas emissions, but score terribly in terms of eutrophication or water use or land use or something like that. So it does make it complex to kind of work our way through. But I guess the main things that we can do as consumers of food to minimise our impact across all of these categories, uh, and I guess the one that Alba really emphasised is to get as much of our protein from plant sources as possible in preference to animal sources, and especially in preference to ruminant animals. So these are animals like cows, sheep and goats that have a stomach that produces methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas as a result of that. And I guess the second part to that is if you are having animal sources of protein, having no more than the minimum that is actually necessary to meet protein requirements. So, you know, we often think about, certainly here in Australia, one of the big messages is obviously reduce, reuse, recycle. You know, the first one is reduce. And in terms of protein, it's reducing to only the amount required, only eat what you need to, not excessive amounts there. So typically for animal protein, if it's you know flesh, you know, meat, fish, chicken, something like that, we're talking about 100-ish grams when it's raw. Um, so it's about the size of a deck of cards. It's actually not very much of those things. If it's eggs, it's about three eggs. If it's milk, it's about 500 mils of milk. Now, we don't know much about some of the new plant-based meat alternatives, sort of the fake meats for, for vegan uh, diets, for example. Um, there is work underway on that, as Alba said, and hopefully we'll have some ideas of that in the next sort of 12 to 24 months. The second thing that Alba said was about buying fruit and vegetables in season as much as possible and minimizing the air travel that is required for food. So that's a, a big one as well. And then reducing food waste, which again comes back to really only using what you need and only buying what we need, finding clever ways to use leftovers for other meals and things like that, rather than just throwing it straight out. That makes a big difference in terms of in reducing the environmental impact. Although athletes often eat more than non-athletes because of the training load, if the majority of that extra food is coming from carbohydrate-rich food sources, then the environmental impact actually may not be that much greater because it's often the protein sources and particularly the animal protein sources that tend to have the greatest impact on the environment. Now, remember that many of the carbohydrate sources, things like wheat that you have in pasta and bread, but also things like quinoa, oats, and the legumes also contribute a reasonable amount of protein. So often you don't need that deck of cards size of meat, fish, or chicken if you're eating it together with these foods that are adding further to the protein intake. So you can actually meet your protein requirements even with, quote unquote, not quite the optimal amount of animal protein there. The other thing we're going to do is speak to an expert in the coming weeks around the animal versus plant-based protein source side of things. Because often in the past, we've talked about the fact that animal based protein sources are more effective uh, or more efficacious than plant-based protein sources. But interestingly, there's a whole bunch of new research in that area that suggests that actually that may not be the case as we originally thought. So we're going to get someone on to talk about that over the coming weeks because that's an important consideration here of are we having to compromise our nutritional quality or our effectiveness of our nutrition strategies from a protein perspective to help reduce our environmental impact and the answer maybe no so we'll have a talk to them in the coming weeks 
Now, we don't know much about the environmental impact of sports nutrition products, things like sports drinks, gels, bars, protein powders, etc. But in general, they're likely to have fairly low production impacts, the exception being probably the animal-based protein powders. Now, there is a new study that's come out. Um, we actually found this after speaking to Alba that does suggest um, that the sports drinks and energy drinks do have a relatively low environmental impact compared to many other types of foods, but obviously still more environmental impact than tap water. So again, it's do you actually need it in that situation? Now, where possible, we can look to reduce the amount of single-use packaging of products as well. So things like buying gels that are produced in bulk packaging and then using reusable gel flasks um, to, to portion that out, or making up your own from raw ingredients, things like carrying a soft flask when you're running instead of using disposable cups at events and things where they're provided, or making your own bars and slices rather than packaged bars so you cut down on the, the packaging of those. We'll hear about some of these ideas from our next guest on the podcast, which we'll talk about shortly. I guess the final thing to bear in mind that Alba mentioned is that often large food production facilities may be actually much more energy efficient than the home kitchen when you are producing some of these products. So when we think about manufactured food and big factories producing things, we tend to think about, you know, terrible environmental impacts and things like that. But actually, it may not be as bad as we think. And often, you know, the the wholesome, you know, Instagram nature of you know home kitchens out in the country cottage and things that looks all sweet and innocent just because it looks that way doesn't necessarily mean it's much better for the environment than the big factory that produces things sometimes it is but it's not guaranteed and so we need to get away from I guess these stereotypes or preconceived ideas about what's good for the environment and what's not and listen to where the science is taking us on these sort of things because it's not necessarily clear cut one way or the other here. Mm. And the other one I just thought of, our, which will be good to do a podcast episode on, is the environmental sustainability of insects as food. You know, that um, is, a, is a big area. And if we think about that, you know, comparing insect farming to livestock production, there's, there's meant to be less land and water that's required, less greenhouse gas emissions, they have high feed conversion efficiencies. So there's, you know, there's potentially some real good benefits of that. We've just got to think about, you know, what the nutrition benefits are there as well. But, um, yeah, that might be an um, episode we do in the future too. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure it's the most common nutrition question that runners, cyclists and triathletes <laughs> ask, but it, it might be an important it's, one, whether we should be eating ant protein powder or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's coming out, you know, I've done mm. some, we've had some assignments from students on this with UniSA and it was really interesting and it, it mm. is a flourishing area. So I, I think yep. it will be an interesting one. I, I know it's the, that's always the thing is it doesn't tend to be that appealing for, for people, but you know, our society, we, we can change, we can make good, good changes. Um, so we'll think about that one. Anyway, um, yeah, so we've got our next episode, as you mentioned, our, so it's 59B, and you um, have been super excited about this one. Yeah, so this is a follow-on from this one, obviously. So the topic is still what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition. But our special guest is ultra runner and environmental advocate Damien Hall from the UK. So for those who are not aware of Damien, he's uh, an ultra runner. He's been running all around the world in all sorts of different events, but sort of started to really look into the environmental impact of the sport of running and 
put together a whole bunch of really good research and, and put that together into a book, which he published last year. So we'll talk about that with him in terms of the process he went through to sort of understand the environmental impact of, of running. Uh, obviously, we're going to be focusing mainly on the nutrition side, but we will touch on some of the other aspects that he sort of identified as the big ticket items in terms of the impact that, that our sport has on the environment and, and you know, the process of writing the book and, and how that's been received since as well. So, yeah, so looking forward to it. I sort of read the book a few weeks ago and, and really enjoyed it. A really comprehensive overview of the impact and, yeah, he's, he's a real funny guy as well. So looking forward to it. A few laughs, yeah. Um, excellent. And so just a reminder that if you do have a question or you like the question I just posed about whether we should be eating insects for food, um, <laughs> help me out and encourage Al for this one. But, yeah, any questions that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really do appreciate it. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds when this episode finishes or stop listening to me now, and we'd love uh, for you to leave a quick rating or review. Those that do leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And remember also that there's now 59 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, then you might like to let them know. Otherwise, we will, as always, love and leave you and see you in a couple weeks' time. Will do. See you then. 